I found an interesting uh, website uh, that listed the odds of various events taking place in the life of the average person. For example, for the average person, the odds of bowling a, th a 300 game are 11,500 to 1. The odds of getting a hole in one, they said, are 5,000 to 1. Odds of winning an Olympic medal are 662,000 to 1. Odds of being on a plane with a drunk pilot, this is not very encouraging. I'm flying this week, next week, and the week after. The odds of getting on a plane with a drunk pilot are 117 to 1. Love you, baby. Odds, <laughs> that's not good. She's flying one of those weeks with me, and Brother Tyler's flying the other one. So, <clears throat> odds of being audited by the IRS are 175 to 1. Odds of having your identity stolen are 200 to 1. Odds of dating a millionaire are 215 to 1. Odds of dating a supermodel are 88,000 to 1. <laughs> I was going to go there, but I'm glad you did, so I didn't have to. Odds of becoming a pro athlete, hats off to uh, Kelby, 22,000 to 1. And odds of being born a twin in North America are 90 to 1. Now, I think you would agree with me that those are some pretty staggering odds. But here's something to think about tonight. The odds of someone even getting the chance to bowl a 300 game or make a hole-in-one or win an Olympic medal or become a professional athlete or be born a twin or be born at all, are about one in four. That's because every 26 seconds in America, a baby is torn from its mother's womb and discarded. In 2017, 800, or excuse me, eight, 882,000 women chose to end their pregnancy through abortion. Now, I want you to listen to me very, very carefully. I'm not standing here tonight to make a political statement. I'm not standing here prepared to share my opinion with you. That's not what tonight is about. I'm standing here as your pastor with God's word in, in my hands, and I trust, and I prayed again before I came into the auditorium tonight, I trust with his love in my heart, his word in my hands, his love in my heart, not to judge or condemn anyone who's had an abortion or who has friends or family members who's had one. 
not my, that's not my intention tonight. My purpose is to solely share with you what God thinks about the sanctity of all life, but especially the lives of the unborn innocent. Former President Ronald Reagan once made the statement, I've noticed, he said, that everyone who is for abortion has already been born. I wonder if those who expend so much energy promoting their pro-abortion agenda have ever once stopped to think that the reason they get to do that is because their mother chose life. As we investigate what a Christian response to abortion should be, it's my hope tonight to demonstrate to you that really the issue of abortion and the fact that, it's, that it is even legal in our country is really a symptom of a much deeper problem. Let's begin with what God has to say about the value of human life. Let's start with the creator and abortion. You know this verse, Genesis 1:27. There we read how God, um, after he had decorated the earth with trees and grass and flowers, and after he had fashioned the birds of the air and the beast of the field and, and all the creatures of the sea, he then created life, male and female. And the Bible says they were created in his image. Here it is. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. This truth alone assures us that, that we are not merely highly evolved animals, as the evolutionist would have us believe. It assures us that taking a human life is not the same as killing a whale. It's not the same as killing a, a, a dog. It's not the same because we are created in the image of God. Human life is special and it's unique and it's holy. For some, the issue is not the, the character of human life. Every walking, breathing, functioning human being's life is sacred, they would say. Their issue is when that life began. That's where the struggle is. That's where the issue comes into play. They would say that all of us sitting here tonight, all of our lives are of value. But they would argue with us as to when that life really began. So let's talk about the conception of human life. To begin with, let me quote Gregory, I believe it's Calcul. 
I believe it's how you pronounce it. He's the founder and president of Stand to Reason Ministries. And here's what he said. If the unborn is not a human person, no justification for abortion is necessary. However, if the unborn is a human person, then no justification for abortion is adequate. And that is the issue. Are the unborn people? Are they living human beings? And I will state emphatically and unapologetically that the unborn is a human person whose life begins at conception. Psalm 22, verse 9. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. And then turn to Psalm 139, and many of you are familiar with this. You've read it, you've studied it, you've been taught it. But look at it. 139, verse 13. For thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book, All my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. Let's go back and look at a few words here tonight. Let's start with the word covered. David said there in verse 13, For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. The Hebrew word there means to fence in. It means to protect. David said, your intention was for me to be protected inside my mother's womb. And then you drop down to verse, uh, verses 15 and 16, and David uses a word there twice. It's the word substance. If you've got a strong concordance at home or, or some other uh, uh, tool that, that you use, I encourage you to look up the word substance there. Even though it's used twice, they're not the same Hebrew word. In verse 15, the Hebrew word there talks about the the body, the, the formed body. He said, my substance was not hid from thee. My, my formation, my body in, in formation. But then you drop down to verse 16, thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written. The Hebrew word there means unformed 
uh, body, an embryonic state, the unformed body. Or, or, does that make sense? The first time David said, my, my formed body. And then the second time he talked about his unformed body yet being unperfect or incomplete, incomplete. It was in embryonic form, if you will. And so even David understood. And listen, David didn't have all of the medical technology that we have today. In my soul, Tiffany, when she was pregnant with Leroy, uh, I mean, showed us pictures of the sonograms. And you know this, it's amazing. The images and the, the pictures and the formations, it's it's, it's phenomenal what God has allowed man to invent and come up with. And it just seems like every invention is just more solid proof that what is in the womb is living. It's alive. It's of God. David didn't have all that, yet he understood that even in his unformed substance, he was a person. He refers to himself as such. Thus saith the Lord that made thee and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Those are the words of the Lord to Isaiah, or that are found in Isaiah 44, 2. And then you drop down in that same chapter to verse 24. Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee in the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things. God told Jeremiah the prophet, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. And I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Clearly, from, from God's point of view, not only does life begin at conception, but in his foreknowledge, he knows each person whom he has chosen to create. And according to Jeremiah, and according to Isaiah, he has even foreordained activity and work for them. Why would God preordain activity and service for something that is without life? Doesn't make sense. There can be no doubt but that unborn children are human beings from God's point of view. And to those who are unsure, if the unborn is alive, be turning to, to Luke 1, if you would please, to those who are perhaps yet unsure as to whether the uh, unborn are alive, I want to ask you a question as posed by a woman named Allison Martinez. She's asked this, if we don't know if the unborn is alive, why take the risk? If it's not alive, then why is an abortion necessary? 
Think about that. Look at verse 15, Luke chapter 1. You still with me? Again, we're, we're just trying to get God's opinion, God's view on life. When does it begin? When is it in existence? Look at Luke chapter 1 and verse 15. For he shall be born, or excuse me, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. Now, those of you who know this passage know that that is a reference to John the Baptist. And note that it says that he would be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. And I would submit to you tonight that the Holy Spirit is not going to fill an intimate blob of nothing. The Holy Spirit fills human beings. He fills that which is living and alive. And then look at verse 41 of Luke chapter 1. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. What babe was it that leaped in its mother's womb? It's the same babe that was mentioned in chapter, in in verse 15. It was John the Baptist. And again, I submit to you tonight that inanimate blobs of nothing do not move at all, let alone leap. You with me? So what does that tell us tonight? It tells us that John the Baptist was alive in his mother's womb. He was a human being already in existence before he was actually born. Is is that how you read that? Look at chapter 2. In verse 12. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe, mark that, the babe, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And then look at verse 16. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And then jump over to chapter 18 of Luke. And verse 15. And they brought unto him also infants, that he would touch them, but when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Note the word infants. And then let me show you this verse. You don't have to turn. It'll be on the screen. 2 Timothy 3.15. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures 
which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. Now here's the point that I'm making. In each of these verses, the same Greek word is used. It's the word brephos. And it's used to describe a child, whether they were yet unborn and inside their mother's womb, or born and existing as infants, or as as Paul was speaking to Timothy, a child or children. It's the same Greek word. God considers a child, whether they're born or unborn, he considers them all the same. It's not like, well, it's a, it's, it's a living human being once it's born. No, not according to the Word of God. According to the Word of God, they are, they are a life, whether they're yet unformed or whether they're partially formed or whether they're fully formed inside or whether they're just laying there all grimy and stuff or whether they're an infant or whether they're a six or seven or eight year old child it's all the same to God and we would never think at least yet that it's okay to take the life of a six-year-old but I submit to you tonight that in God's eyes Taking the life of a six-week or a six-month-old is no different. Whether just because it's in the womb, it's still life. And by the way, the argument that, that life begins at conception is not new. A man by the name of Athenagoras in his work, A Plea for Christians, written in 177 A.D., said this, The fetus in the womb is a living being and therefore the object of God's care. 177 years after the death of Christ, a man makes that statement. And I'm guessing the reason he made that statement was perhaps because there were some who didn't believe that. That is a far cry from where we are today. The legalization of abortion by the Supreme Court in January of 1973 opened the floodgate for the most horrific mass murder of humanity that this world has ever known. And again, I'm not being political tonight. I'm just, you can read this for yourself. You can, you know it, you've seen it. The most recent atrocity perpetrated on the unborn happened just a few days ago. The 22nd of this month, to be exact. When New York State signed into law what they called the Reproductive Health Act. 
And then they stood in applause. They applauded it. And they can say what they want. But this is not about viability. This is not about what's safe or legal or rare. This is nearly unlimited abortion on demand of fully formed babies. And it's my understanding, and I stand to be corrected tonight, that Virginia defeated the bill this morning that would have provided, again, if I understand this correctly, the child could have been born and then cared for and then, depending upon the decision of the doctor and the parents, could have lived or died. Let me tell you something. That's why I said a moment ago, at least now, we understand it's wrong to take the life of a six-year-old. Church, listen, this nation is moving in a horrific direction. It's scary. It's frightening. And all in the name of what? So the question that begs to be asked tonight is this. How did we, as a nation, drift so far away from the morality which characterized the faith of our founding fathers? Perhaps an even more important question would be this. How did the Christian community become so divided on an issue that from a biblical point of view is crystal clear. I'm talking about God's people. I'm talking about people who call themselves believers and followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. How can we be so divided? Which brings us to this point tonight, the Christian and abortion. We know from the Lord's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount that in the midst of a fallen world, Christians are to be salt and light. Would you agree with that? It's right there, Matthew chapter 5. That is, by our lives, we are to be we are to light up the darkness. That's what Jesus was teaching there. It was a revolutionary sermon, that Sermon on the Mount. I mean, he turned the people's way of thinking upside down. And one of the things that he tells us there is that, is that as light, we are to light up the darkness. And like salt on meat, we are to serve as a preserving influence on the culture around us. 
But if we have not been able to keep this horrific practice from being declared legal by our highest court, something somewhere has gone terribly wrong. Where's the light? Where's the salt? As I noted in the introduction, the problem of abortion and the seeming inability of the church to stem the tide of its evil, listen, is merely a symptom of a much deeper problem. Well, Brady, you're making it sound like the blame is on God's people. If that's what you're thinking, then you're tracking with me. Because the problem has to do with Christians being influenced by the culture more than being an influence on the culture. That's the problem. We have allowed our thinking to be influenced by the culture when in reality you and I are supposed to be an influence on the culture. I submit to you that before we can address the dangers of the culture around us, we must make sure that as the people of God, we are who we say we are. And our thinking as we know we should be thinking, and we are living in a way that we are called to live by this book. Ronald Sider, in his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience, writes, Our first concern must be internal integrity, not external danger. What a tragedy for evangelicals to declare proudly that personal conversion and new birth in Christ are at the center of their faith, and then to defy biblical moral standards by living almost as sinfully as their pagan neighbors. Ouch. It's a pretty scathing rebuke. I'm saved and Christ is important to me and he's the center of my life. I just don't live like it. That's us. We're a big part. Church, listen, we're a big part of this problem. The truth of the matter is the absolute moral standards of Scripture have been replaced by the relative moral choices of society. And, and, and listen, this change did not happen overnight. It has happened gradually as we have allowed the culture to affect the way we think. Are we okay? Sadly, many who call themselves Christians, have bought into the teaching of pop psychology 
that teaches you should choose whatever you personally feel would best contribute to your happiness. Pray tell me tonight, where is that in this book? Not in there. Well, you just do what you think is right for you and will make you the most happy. And what's sad is that we have allowed that philosophy to permeate our thinking as believers. And then we wonder why our nation is in the shape that it's in. There has been a denial, even in the realm of Christendom, of any absolute truth. To some, the only unpardonable sin is to claim that absolute right and wrong exists. When you stand up in a workplace or in the classroom or in the locker room or at the, 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 the lunch table or wherever, and, and you dare, you dare to suggest that there is absolute truth, there is black and right, white, there is right and wrong. And you're going to be labeled all kinds of things. And, and listen, listen, listen. Peter makes it clear in his epistle, that if we suffer because we act like knuckleheads and we're obnoxious and we're offensive and we suffer for that, there's a loose paraphrase, Peter said, good on you. You deserve that. You des- if you're going to act like a knucklehead, you deserve to be treated like a knucklehead. Yes. If you're going to be an obnoxious jerk and try to shove stuff down people's throat, then you deserve what you get. But he said if you suffer for well-doing, and you're not being mean, you're not being obnoxious, you're, you're, you're not intentionally being offensive, you're just stating what you believe the Bible says, and you suffer for that, that's totally different. So listen, I, I don't want anybody to leave in here tonight going out being a knucklehead. Because that, that's not my point tonight. I'm not saying we need to go burn down a, an abortion clinic or do anything stupid like that. That's not my point. My point tonight is this. There is absolute right and wrong. And it is the word of God. But again, if you and I dare proclaim that in a public setting, we're liable to be the next viral video. And if we dare dare suggest that a person's personal choices are in any way immoral, then we're hate-filled and we're bigoted and we're, we're holier than thou and we're this and we're that, when in our hearts we're not meaning to be that at all. Not at all. The 
Christian researcher George Barna notes that a national survey shows that only four, listen, only 14% of born-again adults rely on the Bible as their moral compass. 14% rely on the Bible as their moral compass and believe that moral truth is absolute. And then we wonder, how did we get to this place in America? That's how we got there. That's why you'll hear Christians today say, well, I, I think abortion is wrong, and, and I mean, I, I would never have one, but, but who am I to tell someone else what they can or cannot do? But I don't think the problem is whether we can or should tell people what they can or cannot do. The problem is that we are not willing to say what we will or will not do based upon the Word of God. So if we're in the midst of a group of people and the conversation comes to, let's say, abortion. Listen, I don't think you ought to get in somebody's face and tell them what they can or cannot do. But if you have the opportunity, God help us to have enough courage to say, well, here's what I believe. Is it okay if I share this with you? And I'll tell you what's missing in the discussion today is that very thing. We're not willing to share God's point of view for fear of whatever. And so I would submit to you tonight that it's time that God's people stand up and on the authority of His Word declare that there is an absolute truth which is equally applicable to all people at all times in all places. It's time that we quit being influenced more by the relativism of our culture than we are by the revelation of God's Word. How can we expect to impact a culture with truth when many who profess to be Christians don't even believe in truth? Jesus tells us to confess him before men. But listen, confess means more than merely speaking with our mouths. It means living it with our lives. Christianity is not, never has been, never will be merely a private relationship with God. Somebody says, well, my, my, my Christianity is private. No, it's not. It was never intended to be private. It is a personal relationship with God which must manifest itself in very public ways. That's why in the, in the same passage in Matthew 5 where Jesus says we're to be salt and light, he says this, let your light so shine before men that they may see, see your good works. Don't keep it hidden in here. Don't keep it private. Don't sneak around with it. No, God said live it out so that others can see it and glorify your Father which is in heaven. It pains me to say this, but on many levels, 
Christians have lost the right to tell others that abortion is wrong and that it should be illegal. We've lost the right to do that because our practice in other areas doesn't match our profession. Why should the world listen to us on the matter of abortion when it is we who consistently fail to listen to God on issues like adultery and premarital sex and gossip and dishonesty and on and on and on. Why should somebody in the workplace listen to us talk about why abortion is wrong when we don't even live like a Christian? Is that fair? As Christians, we will regain the authority to speak to our morally bankrupt culture when our walk begins to match our talk. Well, Bridget, I knew what you are preaching on tonight, but I didn't think you were going to blame it on me. I'm just being honest with you tonight. You know why we've gotten to this place? Because Christians haven't spoken up. And you know why, by and large, why Christians haven't spoken up? Because we've lost the right to do that. We've lost our credibility. Because we say we believe one thing and live like we believe something else. And we know, well, nobody's going to listen to me because I'm a hypocrite. Well, yeah. And your pastor is not standing here tonight blameless. My standing here tonight is some kind of bastion of, of morality and virtue and example. I'm telling you, we're all in the same boat. Some to just to a greater degree than others. But I think we would all have to admit tonight that to some degree, We've, we've slipped. And our walk doesn't match our talk. So what can Fellowship Baptist Church do to make a difference? We'll wrap it up. First of all, we must be willing to extend forgiveness, the forgiveness of God, to anyone who's been involved in abortion. I told you in the beginning and I'll tell you now. That my purpose tonight was not to condemn, it was not to judge. It's not my purpose. And if you or someone you know has somehow been involved in abortion, then I just want you to know tonight that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all unrighteousness. And who am I? Who are you? Not to forgive someone who God forgives. Help me. 
Abortion is no worse in God's mind than any other sin. We put degrees on it. To God, it's sin. I'm standing here tonight again based upon the authority of this book that anyone who comes to him and asks for forgiveness, 1 John 1, 9, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah. Secondly, we should be advocates for life in every area where God has given us influence. It may be that God puts you in a position to speak up for life to a young girl who finds herself pregnant out of wedlock. I hope you'll do it kindly and lovingly and graciously, prayerfully. A friend or a co-worker may know that you're a Christian and they may seek your counsel and ask you why you think abortion is wrong. There's a lot. Listen, it's becoming very public over the last month or so. You need to be prepared to give an answer. Again, kindly and graciously, but unapologetically. Why you are for life, from conception to birth, and to be a voice for God in that area of your life. And I don't mean to be political tonight, but I'm just going to say this. You need to let your voice be known by voting. That's our God-given privilege. I happen to think, and you can argue with me, I think it's our responsibility. To vote. And to be informed when we do it. And to let this book be more of a guiding force than our pocketbook. Now, I'll just speak for myself tonight. I'd gladly pay more taxes if it means voting for somebody that's pro-life. Because this book overrides my pocketbook. And that should be the position of all of us.